and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 21, and tonight we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19, 17 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Just to get the context, if you remember, if you look at the very first part of 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul, uh, Peter is writing uh, to elect exiles, to those who've been elected by the uh, love of God from the beginning of the world, from before the foundation of the world. And yet, though they matter so uh, significantly to the Father, they're exiles in the world. And they're on this pilgrimage. And Peter's writing a book, a letter to pilgrims, people who are on a journey and uh, encouraging them to walk then in a way that pleases the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was known before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As Peter writes to pilgrims, uh, throughout the letter we're going to find that there are, Peter senses there are two characteristics of a pilgrim. Uh, suffering and holiness. And these will be topics that Peter returns to over and over again uh, throughout his letter. Suffering and holiness. And we've uh, been going through this, uh, this little paragraph here very slowly, very carefully, because holiness is not a, uh, an idea that we're real familiar with, or maybe at least we're, we're, uh, not something that we're real clear about. And we noted, if you remember, in, that there are a, there's a central command and then some um, qualifying statements around each of those commands. But in this paragraph, 13 through 21, there's three commands. The first was live in hope, verse 13. Um, Live in the hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That was the first command. Hope is the foundation for Christian holiness. The second command we looked at last week was live in holiness, And the one imperative of that text was, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And that's really the central command bookended by these two other imperatives, um, set your hope fully, and then the command, the imperative we have tonight, live in fear, conduct yourselves in fear. So you have the central command, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, bookended by the foundation which is hope, 
and then the, 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 the guideline, which is fear. Let me explain what I mean by that. What, what Peter is going to be talking about tonight is, is the, the thing that helps us make our way along. If you remember, if you read the Laura in, uh, Ingalls Wilder books, uh, The Little House on the Prairie, and you remember when uh, the, the blizzard would come, uh, Pa would have to tie a rope from the house to the barn so that uh, he could go back and forth uh, without getting lost in the blizzard. Well, fear is like that rope. The fear of God is like that rope. It is is what keeps us from getting lost in the blizzards of life uh, as we're making our way on this pilgrimage, on this journey. And so tonight we're going to look at just the, the command itself and then try to get a sense of what exactly is this fear of God. We've heard the term, but what does it feel like? What does it look like? And how does it guide us and keep us as we... Uh, strive to live a holy life. So let's begin then looking at the command itself, conduct yourselves with fear. Uh, John Piper, in his uh, treatment of this, um, I think points out helpfully that there is a sort of increasing order of difficulty in these three imperatives for the modern audience. Uh, We are very comfortable with the imperative, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you. That is good news to us. We like that imperative. We like that command. Set your hope on the grace that is freely, fully given to you as a sinner in Jesus Christ. The second imperative, be holy, we're not as comfortable with. But we recognize that God is holy, and we, we do understand that there should be some level of likeness in God's children, and so we're, we're able to receive the command to be holy. We recognize where it comes from and why it needs to be there. But Piper says the third imperative, conduct yourselves in fear, is almost universally uh, distrusted. People are suspicious. Piper says, I assume almost universal suspicion for what I'm about to say. The idea of fearing God just isn't in the acceptable air that we breathe today. It's not part of the culturally correct, and by which I mean psychologically correct, view of the healthy, satisfying religious life. Piper writes, this is the one crucial missing note in modern Christianity, and one of the main reasons why the church is such a carbon copy of the world. We think that grace means there's nothing to fear in our behavior, and 1 Peter 1.17 is simply blanked out in our superficial adaptation to culture. And I think he's largely right, that in the evangelical church, in the American church, uh, and even in our, in our own lives, because we're not quite sure what fear of God is supposed to look like and feel like and what it's supposed to do, we tend to just sort of put that over here. It's not a functioning part too often. Or, yeah, I would just say that, a functioning part of our Christian life. And Peter wants to make this a functioning part of our Christian life. He's convinced that it's an essential part. Now, one of the objections that someone might raise, well, how does this fit. Uh, We just read in Romans chapter 8 that uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Uh, We know that John says in 1 John 4, 18, that perfect love casts out fear. And that's exactly exactly what it says. 
Uh, and we believe, of course, <laughs> we want to claim that. But you see, this is the distinction we need to make. Perfect love casts out some fears, but it introduces other fears. Let me explain that. Perfect love casts out the fear of condemnation, but, but love brings its own fears, its own concerns. For instance, if a young man uh, meets a beautiful young lady, he, there might be an initial fear of talking to her, a fear of asking her out, uh, because what if she says no? What if she laughs in your face? Uh, women don't understand how terrifying those sorts of things uh, could, can be to a young guy. Um, so there's fear there, fear of being rejected. But once he does ask her out, and, and she says yes, and they establish a relationship and maybe fall in love, that fear is gone. He's not afraid of being rejected any longer. But a new fear has taken its place. Maybe it's the fear of losing her. Maybe it's the fear of disappointing her. The fear of wounding her. Any, any husband that loves his wife deeply fears wounding her, fears disappointing her. You see, love is the cause of the new fear. And I think that's exactly what Peter's talking about tonight. There's a fear, uh, not a fear of condemnation, but a fear created out of love. It's not a fear of being rejected by God, but it is a fear, a healthy fear of wanting to honor him, wanting to please him. And so the command then, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are to fear as a normal pattern of life. This, there's, a, there's a gospel fear that believers should know, believers should own. And that's to be throughout your life. It's not something you get past throughout the time of your exile, Peter says. You don't get over this. In fact, the, the more you grow in your faith, the deeper you'll grow in this fear. So what is it? What does it look like? How does it function? Well, Peter gives us very helpfully three qualifying statements, both before and after this central imperative command to fear. The first is, this fear is characterized by recognition that God is my Father. So Peter begins, if you call on him as father. That word if can also be translated since. And I, and I think that might be a better translation. Since you call on him, God, as father. So the fear that Peter is commanding is a fear that relates to God in that sense. The fear of, of knowing that God has become in Jesus Christ my heavenly Father. I have an intimate bonded relationship with him. We read in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit has been poured out. And that spirit is the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. That a real Christian faith is not simply a faith that believes in Jesus. A Christian faith is a faith that in Jesus has come to the awareness, the understanding and appreciation that the living God has become my Father in heaven. That he knows me. He knows my name. He protects me. He provides for me. He delights in me. I am his child because he loved me. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. See, so the Christian faith is, 
It, it believes in Jesus, but it believes in Jesus to the end of knowing that God is my Father. And the Spirit is poured out, not just to give me faith in Jesus, but to give me a confidence that, the, that, that God, the living God, the holy God, has become Father God. And so the fear is not, you see, it's not a cowering fear. It's not the fear of Adam in the garden when he knew that he had sinned and he was desperately trying to hide. It's not anxious, doubting fear. It is an empowering fear. Because I have a father, a loving father, who's bound himself to me. God himself is my father. Alistair Begg tells this story to try to illustrate this. He says some, some teenage boys were considering some act of vandalism, and um, there was a small group of them, but one of them, one of the quieter boys, was unwilling to participate in this act of vandalism. And there's nothing worse, you know, than when you've got a, a small group and you're, de- you're deciding to do something you should not do when one of you um, won't go along with it for conscience' sake. And so they, the, 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 the boy is being tormented and taunted by sort of the leader of the pack. You're just chicken. He's just afraid that his old man will hurt him. And the boy finally spoke up and he says, no, it's not that at all, but I'm afraid that if I do this, it will hurt my father. It will hurt him. That's the fear that Peter's talking about. It, it's, it's the sense that God is my, is my father. I bear his name. And I don't want to displease my father. Every child that has a loving relationship with a father knows what this feels like. It, it's not a fear that's motivated by, it, by a fear of punishment. You'll gladly take, you'd, you'd much rather take the spanking than see the disappointment in his eyes. If you love your father, if you honor and respect your father, you have a holy fear in that sense of not wanting to dishonor him, not wanting to displease him not wanting him to be displeased with you. Now, that's, I I, I would think that we all recognize that in a Christian family or in any home, that that is an appropriate response of a child. And that that we would not want to take away that fear from a child, that, that reverent Fear that, that, that's rooted in a deep desire to honor the Father and, and out of a great love for the Father. There, there is some confusion in Christian circles about this, though, when it comes to God's family. There are some who suggest that, we, that, that God is not displeased with us, that God can't be displeased with us. And again, I, I told you I was going to be doing just some interaction with Barbara Duguid's book, uh, Extravagant Grace, which in so many ways is an excellent book. And can be read with, with, uh, with great benefit as she tries to help us understand why does God not just take besetting sins away from us? What is, what is God sovereignly trying to do when he leaves us to struggle with sin? And yet one of the things that, that Duguid says in various ways and places through the book is that we can't displease God. For instance, page 212, God hates sin and grieves over the pain we inflict on ourselves But he's not annoyed, angry, displeased, surprised, or exasperated. Now, I would want to parse through those. He's certainly not surprised, right? God ordains all that's going to come to pass. Um, He's he's not exasperated. God's never frustrated, ever. But it's, it's not helpful and it's not true to say that God is not displeased with us. 
It's not even that helpful to say simply that God is never angry with us. Reformed theologians have, have distinguished between the, the condemning wrath of God and the fatherly displeasure of God. But the Bible will refer to both of them as anger. For instance, uh, David, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. The thing David had done, this was with Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, displeased the Lord. He is a man after God's own heart, and yet God is displeased. In 1 Chronicles 21.7, David has counted, um, he's done a census of, the, of, of Israel. Uh, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. Uh, God says through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Uh, Psalm 103, his anger is but for a moment, but the Bible does not, is not afraid to say it's anger. That there is a displeasure. Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. We acknowledge this in our own uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, verse 5. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." I remember in my conversations with Chad, and I know that he would not be um, afraid of me sharing this, um, that Chad's experience, and, and this is true of any of us, if we've been in a season of sin, and we're Christian, and maybe in our, in our past there were seasons of experiencing the pleasure of God, experiencing communion with God, and yet when we're in seasons of sin, God can remove that. I, I've had conversations with a friend I went to seminary with who um, had a long season where an ongoing struggle with sin and, and the deep conviction that the, his Father in heaven um, had removed his countenance for a season. We have categories for that in Scripture, in our confession. And, and, and one of the great joys that Chad has is, is the light of the Father's face has returned. And God is communing with him and speaking to him. Chad just, in fact, sent me just today Isaiah 54, verse 8, that I just read to you. Because that seemed to describe exactly what his experience has been. That for a moment, God poured out his anger. And yet with everlasting love and compassion, God is pursuing him and drawing him back. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we want to hang on to. You see, it's precisely because we have a Father in heaven who loves us that he will at times express his displeasure. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of God disciplining those he loves, and, and that, that discipline is never out of, it's not wrath in the sense of condemnation. It's not wrath because God has finally lost his patience. He doesn't lose his patience. But it can be displeasure, and the Bible says it's painful at the time. But be encouraged by it because it shows you're a son and he loves you. Have you ever had the experience, boys and girls, maybe this has been recent, 
where your father disciplined you because of something you did, and it was not fun. It's not supposed to be fun, just a little note. It's supposed to be painful. But boys and girls, didn't you have a sense that, weren't you glad at some place deep down inside that you had a father who loves you enough to discipline you? He loves you enough to to stand in front of you and show you your sin and call you to, to repentance and maybe share the gospel with you that Jesus Christ died for exactly this sort of thing? Isn't there a part of you that's, that's happy that your father loves you enough to do that? I hope that's true. It's exactly what Christians feel. Peter wants us, you see, to, to love the father, to have this, this deep, deep, reverent love for, for God my father and that I want to please him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our aim to please him. And so the character of this Christian fear that produces Christian holiness is a reverence, a love for my Father in heaven who's loved me and given Jesus Christ for me. The second character of this fear is that my Father is an impartial judge. That's what Peter says, that you call on a Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It shows up in various places throughout the, the Bible. Uh, it just means that God is he's a judge who doesn't respect persons. Boys and girls, uh, maybe uh, earthly fathers can do this. Earthly fathers can have favorites. And, and um, of course, we never think we are the favorite. We're always thinking that it's, it's, it's our brother or our sister. But earthly fathers can do that. They can just, for whatever reason, have, uh, and they won't confess to it, but it can happen. Where maybe the son is particularly athletic. Uh, or the daughter is particularly just charming. And poor daddy can't help it, but it's just hard for him to realize uh, when this particular child is doing something wrong. And the other children can maybe sense that, that when I do it, this happens. When she does it, nothing happens. It's all sunshine. And we sense the injustice of it. Peter says God doesn't have favorites. He has no favorites. The Jews were convinced God had favorites. The Pharisees were convinced God had favorites. Christians can be convinced that God has favorites. Yeah, we know we sin, but our sins, God surely doesn't hate our sin the way he hates the sins of those guys, of that group of people. Peter says, no, 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 he he does not respect persons. He He doesn't render his judgments according to social status or religious accomplishments. He judges according to each man's work. That means he's not going to judge you, teenagers, according to your parents' faith. He's going to judge you according to your faith and your work. And that's true for me too, isn't it? He's not going to judge you according to your intentions. He's not going to judge you according to your affiliations, your promises, your professions. What he will judge us according to is what we actually do or what we do not do. That will be the, the issue on the table. If you, don't, if you doubt that, just go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and, and look at what Jesus says about sheep and goats. It's not what they profess that makes the difference. It's not what organization religiously they belong to. It's what they did do or what they did not do. That will be the basis of the judgment. And so Peter wants us to understand that our Father, our loving Heavenly Father, judges us in heavenly fatherly love. He judges us. Now, it's 
It's not the judgment of condemnation, obviously, right? There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God justifies. Who is it to condemn? No, it's, it's not the judgment of condemnation. But there remains a judgment for believers. And that happens, in a sense, in, as an, in an ongoing way. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God's evaluating. God's discerning. And when God sees that we're going off the path and that we need to be brought back, he will judge our actions and, and discipline us and bring us back. Praise God. But there's also, uh, in the Scripture, the fact that there is a judgment day for believers. There is a, an evaluation that will take place at the end of our life regarding what we've done. Now, again, I don't think we're very used to that sort of language as Reformed Christians. Our Reformed sensitivities tend to dull our ears to that particular point. In fact, I remember clearly the first time I ran headlong into this idea, I was graduated from seminary. I was done with seminary. I was writing a sermon, uh, part of my internship, and, and I... I come to 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the fact that God is going to judge us according to our works. I did not know what to do with it. I called my seminary professors. And either I was not paying attention or I missed that class, but I, I, I had no idea what to do with it. Why is that? Well, it's understandable. We love the doctrine of justification. We love the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We love knowing that our judgment, in a sense, is done. It's complete. Jesus bore it. We will never be condemned. Praise God. But the Bible talks about a judgment day for believers. Not a judgment of condemnation, but it will be a judgment of verification and affirmation. And let me just try to make clear what that is. There will be a judgment for believers for verification and for affirmation. Let's look at verification first. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his righteousness alone. That's what saves us. But there will be a judgment to verify the reality of our faith. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, watch out for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's like leaven. It spreads throughout the whole thing and kills it. And, and then immediately he, he tells his disciples, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What is done in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So he's, he's saying, these Pharisees, they think they've got it all together. They're giving the appearance they have it all together. But there's going to be a judgment day where all the secret stuff, the inside stuff, the, where the real person lives, one day that's all coming out. And every hypocrite who has professed to believe in Jesus Christ and yet in their heart has not loved Jesus Christ, has not loved the Father, has, has not lived for Christ or the Father, and on the last day, that's just going to come out. It's going to be revealed. But positively, this, this judgment day will be a day where the, there will be, for true believers, the evidence of your faith 
will be made manifest. And the evidence of your faith is not how strongly you professed it. The evidence of your faith will be, what did you do with it? John Stott says the judgment day will be a public occasion and good works will be the only public and visible evidence which can be produced to attest the authenticity of our faith. The Bible does not shy away from that. It teaches it. Good works will be the only public and visible evidence which can be produced to attest the authenticity of our faith. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, which is a very sobering read, but it's just a bunch of sermons he did on this topic. He, he says on the last day, the issue will be evidence, 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 evidence. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each one's work, notice work, will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The reality, you see, the work that you have done is the evidence of the faith that you professed. James says faith without work is dead faith. It's not saving faith. On that day, the truth of your insides will be evident, both the good and the evil. If, there's, if, there's, if, if you're a hypocrite, it's, it, it's a day of verification. Now, why would Peter say that? Well, because that sort of clarifies things. If you're, if you're a hypocrite, if you're just sort of skating by thinking that your religious activities and your professions and your theological knowledge and, and, and some of the, the religious things you do, you're thinking that's going to cover what's actually going on inside? Jesus wants you to know, no, it's not. It's not going to cover. It, it won't work. And on the last day, it's all coming out. It's all going to be revealed. And you'll be shown to be a hypocrite. Now, that's helpful information if you're a hypocrite. And it's a wonderful warning so that we repent of our hypocrisy. We all have it. But I don't want to go in the last day pretending to be something that I'm not. I want, to, I want to just come out with it. See, that's the beauty of being a Christian, isn't it? To be a Christian means that you've already outed yourself. You've already acknowledged before everyone you were so wicked, the Son of God had to die to rescue you. It's already on the table. There's a lot of freedom in that. So Paul, Peter, wants us to know there's a judgment day for verification, but also there's a judgment day for affirmation. There's a judgment day that God intends good things for us in it. He intends to give us rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. John Murray says this, works done in faith from the motive of love for God in obedience to the revealed will of God and to the end of his glory are intrinsically good and well-pleasing to God. Now, we have to hear that because there are some who say, well, they're not good. They're, 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 they're saturated with sin. Our best works are filthy rags. Well, that's just not what the Bible says. 
It doesn't say that your efforts motivated by a love for God, that where you're, you're trying to obey the revealed will of God and your desire is to glorify God. The Bible will not tell you that, that is, that's filthy rags. It's not. It's pleasing to your Father. He delights in it because He's created it in you. It's good. It's intrinsically good. It's God-honoring. It's beautiful. Let's not dishonor him by casting aspersions on his work. And so Murray says they're intrinsically good and well-pleasing to God. So young mother, when you're bearing with the crying baby, and you're at the end of your wits, and you ask God, please help me. I want to I be a loving mother, and I don't want to lash out at, at my husband when he comes home. And, and God gives you the grace. Do you know how beautiful that is? you know how precious that is to your father? And young men, when you're, when you're at work, and, and there's a temptation that comes your way, and you, but you want to honor your wife, and you want to honor the Lord your God, and so you, you turn away from the image, you turn away from the temptation, and you ask God to help you with your lustful heart, you know how, how good that is, how well-pleasing that is to God? It's beautiful in his sight. And God says, I'm going to reward it. He sees it. And he doesn't say, well, why did you have that desire in the first place? Or how come you, why do you have such a short temper to start with? He doesn't say that. He delights in the obedience that he gives and he desires and commits himself to bless it. So Murray says, these are intrinsically good works, well-pleasing to God, and as such, they will be the criterion of reward in the life to come. We must maintain justification, complete and irrevocable by grace, through faith, and apart from works. So why does, when you come to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You'll want to say, because Jesus is my righteousness. And at the same time, the father will say, son, daughter, let me reward you for your works. That's what the Bible says. Let me reward you. Let me bless you. See, this is not, this is not, this judgment is not meant to, to frighten us or shame us. It's meant to encourage us. Our father will review and reward our accomplishments. Every one of them is accomplished by his strength. Every one of them is done by his grace. All the glory goes to God. You're not going to be bouncing around heaven saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. You're going to say, look at him, look at him. See what he did. Can you believe what he did in me? Isn't that going to be the, the joy what God was able to do in you and the reward that God gives to you and all of it is grace because it was his grace that made it happen in the first place. And so the rewards, are they're not merited, but it's God delights to give it to you. God promises to publicly bless you and reward you for the obedience of your faith. And friends, there's more obedience than you think if you're a Christian. There's more obedience than you know. I think Christians will be astonished on the, day, on the last day of what God actually accomplished in them and through them. 
And Peter says, live in cognizance of that day. Live with that healthy longing that you want to honor your father in this life with a life saturated with his grace. You want to, on that last day, be shown to be someone who lived empowered by his strength. You were made useful for his purposes, all by his power, all by his grace. But it happened to you. And the father will say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You need to believe that because when you arm yourself with that, do you think the devil has a chance to tempt you? When you know the Father is standing there smiling and ready to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, it just rips out the power of the temptation. And then let me wrap up with this. Peter wants us to fear this fear of a love for our Father, this fear of a conviction, of confidence that, that we're going to be rewarded on the last day and, and we're going to be revealed on the last day. But finally, a fear of offending my Savior Jesus Christ, a fear of offending the blood that bought me. So verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the fear, the fear that motivates holiness is a fear that you do not want to offend the blood that bought you. Somebody died for you. I'll never forget. I've only seen Saving Private Ryan once. I don't know if I could do it again. But I'll never forget at the end of that movie where, the, the, where Private Ryan now is an old man and he's in France at the graves of his friends who, and, and, and these other soldiers who gave their lives so that he could be rescued and, and brought back home. You remember what happens? And I, it's just gonna, it won't be exact, but I've, I've said it before. But you remember what happens? He's weeping. This old man. Ah, man. This gets me. And he says to his wife, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. Why? Because he was bought with blood. And it would crush him to think that he had wasted the sacrifice those men had made on a selfish, wicked life. That's exactly the sentiment that Peter wants us to live now in, with a godliness, with a holiness, with a confidence. Not just tell me I'm a good man, but, the, but this deep sense that I, I, I don't want to sin against the blood that bought me. Someone died, the Son of God died on a cross, nails through his hands, a spear in his side. He wailed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it for me. He did it for you. He died, suffered the wrath of the Father for you. And, and Peter says, don't forget that. Don't live as though that were not precious to you. Precious blood has been shed for you. And it's permanent it's, it's, it's sufficient to wash away all of your sins. It's, it's not a perishable thing. It stands imperishable, and it has the power to sanctify you. He says you were, you were ransomed with this blood. Notice what he says. He says you're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, he doesn't say you were ransomed from the wrath of God. That's true, but it's not what he says. He's not pointing to, to the power of Jesus' blood to justify you here. He's pointing to the power of Jesus' blood to sanctify you. 
That, that this blood has ransomed you from dead religion, from just saying the words but not knowing the power. It ransoms you from a form of godliness and denying the power. It ransoms you from seeking your righteousness in, uh, in, through the law by being a good person, but it frees you to be righteous under the reign of grace. And that's what Peter wants us to see. It's exactly what Paul rejoices in when he writes of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If we understand the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed for us, the value of it, the permanence of it, how precious it is, we're going to fear sin. Jesus, don't let me sin against your blood. Father, don't let me sin against that love that bought me when I was a rebel. Don't let me sin against this precious blood of Jesus Christ. See, that's the fear. It's such a beautiful fear. It's such a, it's such a holy fear. It's such a good thing. You, you, you can't know what it is and, and, and say, well, that's, that's not for me. That's not what I desire. Not if you're a child of God. We get to do this. We get to live for him who died for us. My question tonight is, is that your heart's desire? Is, that, is this what you want? Do you want this to characterize your life, that you have such a love for the Father that the thought of displeasing him gives you literal pain? Do you have such a delight in, in the blood of Jesus Christ, such an understanding of its value that you, you, just, you just can't, you can't just turn your nose at it. And when you do, when you, when you, and you know when you do, it breaks your heart and you, and you have to go back to the Father. You've got to go back to Jesus and, and, and confess the truth, confess the sin, and ask him to forgive. That's the Christian life. We, just, we, we repent over and over, but as we're repenting, we're trusting and we're leaning onto this beautiful, precious blood and we're trusting that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and is for us who will discipline us, praise his name, when we need to be disciplined. And ultimately, he will reward us. Well done, good and faithful servant. May God grant that every one of us here hears those words. And friend, if, if it's not you tonight, if you don't know that this is you, maybe, and maybe you're, just, you're just dead stuck in a besetting sin, please don't just stay there. Come and talk to someone. Pray with someone. Let the truth of God help you. Um, maybe tonight you just don't care. You're just living your life. Oh, there's nothing, more, there's nothing more precious than this life. I hope you sense by the Spirit of God the emptiness of a life lived for you and the beauty and the glory of a life lived in the fear of God. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we often live ignorant, apathetic, blind to your great love for us and what it means to be a child of the Father in heaven. So, Lord, we confess that and we thank you that you want us to know that we are your children. And, Lord, the truth is so many of us have a sense that we, we're just failures at this. We're, we're not good children. We're proud, we're selfish, we're lazy, we're lustful. And Father, you know 
that a message like this can wound our hearts because we're, we're sorry, we're not, we're not better children. And yet, oh, Father, I thank you that, that that grief is on its own, Lord, a work of your grace. And Lord, I pray you'd move us beyond just grieving and, and further on into believing. That you're the God who claimed us before the foundation of the world and you gave us a Jesus Christ on purpose. And you brought us to him in time with intent. And that is to make us holy. Both by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ freely given to us and the imparted righteousness of Jesus Christ worked within us by the Holy Spirit. You've called us to be holy. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Oh, so Father, I pray that we would hunger for it and we would pursue it because we want to honor you, our Father, because we do not want to be hypocrites and because we've been purchased with precious blood. And so, Lord, work these truths, work them into our lives that we are truly being transformed in all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.